0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsioufalls.org. Long ago, in the city of Smyrna, which is on the edge of western Turkey, there lived a man named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was born just a couple of years after the martyrdom of Peter and Paul in Rome. And he grew up and as a young man, he came to study with the Apostle John, who, of course, of all the apostles, was the one who lived the longest. So in his youth, he had received instruction from a man who had spent formative days in the presence of Jesus himself. Polycarp went on to be a, a formidable presence in the life of the church a great leader, a great witness to the testimony of the apostles about the life and the teachings and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lived to an old age himself. He was in his 80s and in the AD 150s he was regarded as a, a gentle, a kind man, a uh, one who lived the virtues that Jesus had taught. And it was at that time, in the twilight of his years, that a great persecution began in the Roman Empire. And because of his prominence, this elderly man was singled out. He was brought into the presence of the Roman authorities in front of all of the people, and he was given an opportunity, a choice that he needed to make. And the choice was this. On the one hand, he could renounce Christ and live out his final days in peace. On the other hand, he could be burned at the stake. And he just needed to decide which of those two things he would like to have happen to him. Polycarp didn't take a lot of time to reflect. He thought to himself that throughout his life, from his earliest days, Jesus had been so good to him. How could he possibly, at the end of his life, turn his back on Christ? But if you put yourself in his shoes, in his sandals, and you ask yourself if you found yourself before the authorities the way he did at a ripe old age, your early 80s, having lived a faithful life. And the way that that was going to conclude was not to find yourself uh, surrounded by family and loved ones as you lived your final days, but instead to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be made sort of a public spectacle as your flesh is burned on the stake. You might have wondered what it was all for you might have wondered why you had lived the kind of life you had lived if this is the way that it was going to end. Right, we tend to assume that if things turn out badly for you, it reflects badly on the choices that you've made on the life that you live, then it would have been natural for any of us in that situation to think something similar. If they're burning me at the stake, then clearly somewhere along the line, I made some bad choices or Or, maybe it's not that I made bad choices. Maybe it's that God doesn't care for me the way that I thought He did. Maybe God doesn't have my best interests at heart the way that I thought He did. It's in moments like this, when we find ourselves tested, when we find ourselves not being rewarded for our faithfulness, but actually being punished for it, that we tend to question. We tend to doubt the plan of God for our lives. And when we do this, there's one thing we need to be reminded of. Two things, in fact. The first is that things are not as bad as you think they are. The second is they're not bad for the reason you think they are. Things aren't as bad as you think they are, and they're not bad for the reason that you think they are. We turn to our text in Hebrews chapter 12, and we see the author of Hebrews encouraging us do exactly what Polycarp did when he was given that choice of rejecting Christ. When he was given the choice, what he did was he reflected on the example of Christ, on the goodness of Christ to him. And so we read these words in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. When we look at the life of the church and we see things going badly for the church, we begin to worry about the future of the church. We look at our own lives and we begin to worry about our own futures. It's natural to wonder where the care of God has gone. Where is this love that we preach about that God supposedly has for us? But when we ask those questions, we're guilty of two things. One, exaggerating the bad. And also, mistaking the nature of the hardship that we endure. If we feel instead of nearness, distance, if we feel instead of intimacy, alienation, we cannot assume that these things are the result of God not loving us, not caring for us. Because sometimes, if the question you're asking is how do I know Jesus loves me? The answer what the author of Hebrews tells us, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. The hardship in your life, as hard as it is to imagine sometimes, can be an expression of love. But when we compare ourselves to Jesus, when we consider him who endured so much, the first thing we gain is perspective, right? Compared to him, we haven't endured so much. Whatever we've suffered, and, and I don't for a moment intend to belittle our suffering. But whatever it is, in comparison to what he endured, it's small. None of us have given up what he's given up. Like none of us have suffered what he suffered. So we shouldn't grow weary in our hardship. In fact, we should draw strength from Jesus' example of endurance. The endurance of Jesus, the endurance of the saints that we looked at in Hebrews 11 are meant to encourage us. Not to interpret our own hardships as the absence of God's love, but rather to see in them sometimes discipline. Discipline. We shouldn't fall away from Him. We shouldn't turn our backs on Him when things get hard. Sometimes they're meant to be hard. And of course, like those saints that we reviewed in Hebrews 11, Our hardships are not as hard as we think they are, not because they're not hard, not because our sufferings aren't real, but because in comparison, not only to what Jesus suffered, but also to the good things to come, this suffering isn't the final word. The hardships we endure now, we endure for a season in order that we may gain eternity with Christ. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. When you experience discipline, it shouldn't shake your confidence. Paradoxically, it should build that confidence. When Polycarp found himself before the Romans given this choice, he didn't just choose Christ. When he confessed Christ before the people, he was condemned to death, condemned to burn at the stake, but he made one request. It wasn't for mercy. He asked that that they would suspend part of the tradition. The tradition was when you burn someone at the stake, you bring them up to the stake and you nail them to the stake so that they can't get off of it as they're burning. They're writhing in pain. You want the body to be firmly fixed to the stake. And Polycarp said, in my case, you won't need to do it. Just don't restrain me to the post. Don't nail me to the post. I'll stand there my own free will and offer myself in the flames to the Christ that I owe so much to. And as he went to the stake and stood there, unbound, to offer himself as a witness, as a martyr, he prayed a prayer of thanks to God. He thanked God that he had been found so worthy to endure this day and to endure this hour to join the other witnesses as they partook of the cup of Christ. He saw the trial that he faced, not as a punishment, not as a sign of abandonment, but actually as a whole life of faithfulness being brought to completion. That all of the faithfulness that he had shown to Christ had led to this day when he was able to offer up his very life for the cause of Christ. What he discovered as he was tested was not that he had been abandoned by God, but that God had indeed rewarded him for his faithfulness by giving him this share, this participation in suffering. In other words, he understood that discipline doesn't signify punishment. It means something else. It's because God loves us that we endure such things. It is because He loves us that we endure hardship. His discipline aims not to punish us, but to perfect us. To bring us to completion, in other words. Listen to these words from Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. To those who have been trained by it. The discipline of God is a sign of his love. The discipline of God, we're told, is evidence that we are his true children. Not illegitimate. In other words, if we weren't really his, he wouldn't take the care, the time, to discipline us in the way that he does. He also draws an analogy He he points to the example of earthly fathers and their relationship to earthly sons. He said, look, we had fathers, our fathers disciplined us, and we respected them for it. And if that was true, then how much more ought we to respect and love the God who disciplines us? Because after all, let's face it, even well-intentioned parents don't always do the job well. They don't always get it right. They do it as it seems right to them he says they they do the best that they can do and it seems painful at the time to be disciplined but in the long run we look back and we see the value of it we recognize the value of what a parent was willing to sacrifice in order to discipline us it's a strong metaphor but it's also a problematic one for us in our day and age because this idea of discipline has fallen out of favor the idea of disciplining your children. I mean, we have, right, just gathered here today, like generations of experience, different experience, a whole spectrum. Like, some of us come from the era of, of corporal punishment. Right? And the way that you disciplined your children was, was to take off your belt and snap it ominously and administer discipline. And now we live in a much gentler time, right, where people don't do that sort of thing at least not very often, and discipline is a much softer thing now. And as a result, old people, you know, people who had to endure the lash in childhood, uh, we look at at younger people as being soft as a result. And yet, let's be honest, part of the change is as a a well-intentioned concern for abuse and cruelty. Because as I said before, like discipline hasn't always been administered correctly or well. And in the name of discipline, a lot of harm really has been done. And I don't want to suggest from uh, an observation, hey, you know, my parents spanked me and look how I turned out, that, that no harm has ever been done. <laughs> Maybe I didn't turn out so well in some ways either. So I don't want to belittle the reality that we do are concerned about that. Like It, it troubles us to think of discipline as, as a, a good without qualification. At the same time, though, part of the change isn't, isn't that we've gotten more considerate. Part of the change is that we've come to view children a little bit differently than we have in the past. It seems to me that now, as perhaps never before, like we have a, a strong belief in the innocence of children. Children are innocent and good. What corrupts that goodness is maturity. It's growing up. It's the loss of innocence. So when an adult disciplines a child, not only does that not afford any positive good, but it actually probably does a terrible harm. And It's probably how we are scarring our children for the future. When I think back of my own uh, discipline as a child, I'm confident that I gave more psychological wounds than I ever received when my parents tried to discipline me. But it's not always that way. And as a result, we shy away from these things. But you know, it's not true that children are innocent. As parents can attest, if you pay close attention to children, they don't act in innocent ways. What children are is human. Children may be undeveloped, but they possess human nature with all of the good and bad things that go along with it. And the important characteristic of childhood as far as discipline is concerned is not the sinfulness it's the unformedness the purpose for discipline in the life of a child is not to punish when the child does wrong it is to form the child as he or she grows up and matures right we discipline children in the hope that they will grow in moral strength for future trials So it's not just that we discipline in order to punish. Like you've done something wrong, and so now it's my time to to sort of take retribution on you. You administer discipline in the hope that in the future, the wrong that was done today won't be done. That, That there will be a strength that is discovered in the process of discipline. So the spirit, even of negative discipline, even when discipline is a form of punishment, the spirit of it isn't, take that, it's go and sin no more. There's a desire, even a negative discipline, for restoration. For the good of the one who receives the discipline. Because they are a true child. One you care about. One you love. And want to raise well. Purpose of discipline is not to punish. It is to form. And the reality is, we're being formed constantly. Not just by parents, but by many different forces. If we chose... For the best of intentions, not to discipline our children, guess what? They wouldn't grow up undisciplined. They would just grow up disciplined, formed by someone else. Which is the reason why we do find this, right? We maybe, with the best of intentions, decide to take a hands off approach. Let them choose for themselves. Let them decide for themselves, make their own choices. I'm not going to impose. I'm not going to force my mind on their minds. And then we discover that they've grown up and the mind that they share isn't ours, it's the mind of the other who shaped them. And there's an interesting relationship. We resent discipline when it happens. It seems painful to us in the moment, but we come to love the one who formed us. We come to feel a loyalty an indebtedness to the one who formed us because we recognize it took care. It took sacrifice. As a result of that, even though it is inconvenient, even though it can be traumatic for the one who disciplines much more so than for the one who is disciplined, we must take that care to form those that God has entrusted to us. Whether it's parents forming their children, whether it's a church helping to form the minds of young disciples and the hearts of young disciples. All of us will be shaped. The question is just whether we will take the effort, make the effort, take the trouble to shape after the mind of Christ. The goal of discipleship, which is discipline, the goal of discipline over time to be a disciple, conform to the image of Christ is to find the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That requires discipline. None of us on the moment we come to Christ, the moment that our heart is first awakened, none of us is a fully formed believer. None of us fully understands what it means to be in Christ during the course of our whole lives. He shapes us. He molds us. He brings us into greater maturity And part of the way that He does that is through the hardship that we endure. And at the end of that process, as a result of that hardship that seemed painful, we find these peaceful fruits of righteousness because we were trained by the Spirit. Continuing again in Hebrews 12. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. The root of bitterness. Here's the way this works ordinarily. When you endure hardship, when you go through pain in life, difficulty, that pain yields fruit. But the fruit that it yields ordinarily is not the fruit of righteousness that was just alluded to. It's something else. It's... uh, Hardness or bitterness. We go through hardness and the fruit of that hardness is hardness in us. The hardship makes us hard. We harden ourselves as a result. That's ordinarily what happens. That hardness is a kind of bitterness. It's a kind of resentment. It's the reason why you reach a certain point in life and you're aware of all of the things you intended to do and you haven't done them. And you look around and you see the people enjoying the things that you thought you would enjoy. And you resent those people for it. Your friends are going off to Europe and you're not. You resent it a little bit. Your friends have a new boat or they have a lake house and you resent it a little bit. You are in the hospital and your friends are having fun on the weekends. You resent it. Because you're going through things and it makes you hard. You're going through things and it makes you see that that there's a difference between the way that you're being treated and they're being treated. And over time, it wells up. Right? A lot of us we've experienced this in our jobs. Like you start work with a lot of ambition, a lot of uh, a sense of what you're going to achieve in life. I confess, uh, my plan for my life was very different than what God's plan for it turned out to be. I should have been famous by now. I should have been rolling in money by now. I should be on television by now. They should be making movies of my books by now. And none of that is happening. But you know who that is happening for? A lot of stupid people who are not nearly as good as I am at what I do. Right. I'm not saying this to be funny. It's just true. It's just true. And you've seen that truth as well, right? There are people that are not nearly as good as you are. Not as skilled as you are. Not as talented as you are. And they are enjoying things that are being denied to you. It's not just that you haven't had the opportunity. It's like the doors have been slammed in your face. And it's not fair. It's not right. And when you pile up and you treasure all of that unfairness, something happens in your heart. A root of bitterness springs up. And the way you see the world and the way you see people changes. We want to be happy for other people when good things happen to them. Sometimes we are, but a lot of times we have to fake it. Because it's painful to see them getting what we wish we were getting. Bitterness. And in a community where we're called not only to love Christ, but to love one another, if in our hearts these roots of bitterness are springing up, how is it possible that they will know us by our love? Not possible. So what I want you to see is this, that part of discipleship, part of the work that God is doing in your heart is giving you the kind of life that produces bitterness and expecting it to yield a different fruit. God's not a farmer, right? If you're a farmer, you know that what you plant is what you get. The kind of seed you plant is what grows up. If God wanted us to have lives of love, then He would plant A lot of good experiences in our lives. He would make it really easy for us to love people. If he wanted us to be good, he would have given us good environments. He would have given us good things. He would have always met our needs the way that we wanted them met. If that's what God wanted from us, then what he ought to have done is planted the right seeds in our lives. And he hasn't. In fact, he's done exactly the opposite. He said, what I want from you, I want you to yield fruit of righteousness. What has been sown in your life is is the root of bitterness. And if that feels wrong to you and it feels unfair, I'm not telling you it's not unfair. It's totally unfair. The only thing I'm saying is it's also what he did in the life of Christ, his Son. The one we confess and follow. And we cannot be in Christ and expect to live different lives than he did. You can't follow after Christ and expect, well, I know Jesus suffered, but but He suffered so that I won't have to. It's not the way it works. You will suffer. The seed of bitterness will be planted in your life again and again and again. And it has to be rooted out. It cannot be allowed to stay there. The way that we grow in grace, the way that we grow into the image of Christ is by rooting out this 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 seed of bitterness and instead yielding fruit of righteousness. This is why we're told to strive for peace and holiness. Strive for peace and holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Bitterness wants you to be at enmity with everyone. But Christ wants you to be at peace with them. To be at peace with the people who agree with you. The people who share your interests. The people who share your politics. people who share your religious convictions. Be at peace with them. But He also wants you to be at peace with the people who do not share your politics, who do not share your theological convictions, who do not share your your background, your culture, your nation, any of that. Be at peace with those people too. And strive for holiness. Holiness isn't self-indulgence. It isn't living a life of pleasure. Holiness is living a life of sacrifice like the life of Christ. It's running Christ's race after Him. Strive for holiness. That's what we ought to do. Earlier, we were pointed to a relationship that we're familiar with. That that parent-child relationship of discipline. But of course, we know from our study of the New Testament, that when we're pointed to familial ties like this, they serve as a kind of sign, a symbol. It's strange to think that in, in your relationships, the loving relationships that, that you're in, these have sign value. They signify something higher. So when you think about fathers disciplining sons, it's hard not to think about the Father and the Son. It's hard not to think about the life of Christ on this earth. right, Jesus... Who had to pray, you know, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. Jesus, who had to endure pain for a season. Jesus, who we're told in Hebrews 2, verse 10, was made perfect through suffering. Made whole, made complete through suffering. That's the father-son relationship that we're meant to look at and meant to draw strength from. Nothing that's happening to us didn't happen already to Christ. Nothing that the Father is doing to us he is, is something He hasn't already done to Christ. And it ought to be an encouragement to us to find Him treating us as He treated His Son. It's interesting, the, the figure that we end with in our text is Esau. You know, in the long line of of covenant history, Esau is an interesting case. He was a firstborn son, an inheritor of a great promise. But he sold that inheritance for basically nothing, for a meal. And later he regretted having done that. He regretted the, the ease with which he had traded that birthright. But he could not gain it back, though he sought it with tears. We're told at the end of our text, don't be unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. As we end with this tragic example, remember that that one of the motives that the author of Hebrews has in writing this epistle is that he is concerned that the example that is being followed in the church as it suffers is not the example of Christ, it's the example of Esau. He sees Christians who've inherited this great promise of salvation, but when they're persecuted, when they endure hardship, they turn away from it. They go back to where they came from. They abandon their faith. And now, the example he holds up is is Esau. To turn your back on Christ is essentially to sell your birthright, to sell the good promise that you've inherited, to trade it for nothing. And remember how Esau ended up. He regretted it, but he could not get it back, though he sought it with bitter tears. The good news is this. You don't have to be Esau. As the author of Hebrews said earlier, as he was warning us about apostasy, don't fall away from the faith, after making these these dire warnings, he ends by saying, but I don't think this is true for you. I don't believe that this is true for you. I have confidence in the work that Christ is doing inside you. And that confidence is meant to give us hope. Because the reality is, we have all fallen away. We have all turned aside. We've gone through hardship, and in our hardship, we haven't done like Polycarp did. We haven't said, well, Christ has been so good to me. I will gladly suffer for Him. We've said, what's going on here, God? This was not the agreement. You were meant to be there for me. If anything, if we've served Him, we expect more from Him. Right? He owes us now. We've all been guilty of selling our inheritance, trading it for nothing. We've all been guilty of in the moment of of testing, of turning our back on the Savior who never turned His back on us. And the good news is that despite that, there is hope for us. There is hope for us in the cross. What was true for Him doesn't have to be true for us because we follow Christ, not Esau. If you were here Thursday night for Luke Jones's baptism you witnessed something really special. I, I was on stage watching uh, Chris Harper visiting pastor who was administering the baptism and of course I was taking notes on everything that I was seeing and, and Chris had some some beautiful words that uh, I wanted to commit to memory but Luke kept yawning in this really cute way and it distracted me a lot. but one of the things that, that Chris talked about was the significance of baptism not just for the child receiving the sign of, of the Covenant but also for all those baptized people witnessing it. He said this is an occasion not only to to witness the baptism of another, but to reflect on the significance of your own. To recognize that in that sign, what's being signified is a covenant promise that has been made. What's being signified is a promise that God has made. A promise He's made, as He tells us in Hebrews, to Himself. He has sworn by Himself. Because there's nothing higher by which he can swear. A promise he intends to keep. The sacraments are signs intended to fill us with hope. Because we naturally doubt. Because we want to be able to touch and see. And it's difficult to believe in an unseen promise. So God has filled our lives with signs of his goodness. Of his intention to be faithful. When Christ was on earth, he endured so much. He endured suffering. He endured what we might think of as a very negative kind of discipline. A suffering that was meant to bring him to perfection. Right? Not that he had begun imperfect, but that his work, his life, needed to be brought to completion, to be perfected. Just as we saw last week, Jesus is described as the author and perfecter of our faith. He begins it, but also brings it to completion. That task of bringing faith to completion involves discipline. It involves hardship. Which means you're going to go through things. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for the sake of Christ. You're going to be judged. You're going to be shamed. You're going to have to endure things. Nothing like what Jesus endured. And honestly, nothing like what Polycarp endured. But you're going to go through something. And it's going to test you. And when it tests you, what we're encouraged to see here is that testing itself is not a sign of judgment. It's not a sign of of abandonment. It is actually a sign. It bears witness to love. The fact that Jesus loves us. If you believe in Christ, you will not be spared discipline. If you believe in Christ, you will enter into his love. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.